0: Welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson.
1: It's so refreshing and so the way that the art world should be, but I am very aware that it's not typical.
0: That was Veronica Roberts, since 2013, the Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art at the Blanton Museum of Art, a division of the University of Texas at Austin. She was previously Adjunct Associate Curator of Contemporary Art at the Indianapolis Museum of Art, Director of Research for the Saul LeWitt Wall Drawing Catalogue raisonné. Curatorial Assistant in Painting and Sculpture at the Museum of Modern Art, and Curatorial Assistant at the Whitney Museum. Her MA in Art History is from the University of California at Santa Barbara, and she's a graduate of Williams College. Among the exhibitions she has organized are Converging Lines, Eva Hesse and Saul LeWitt, Nina Kachadurian, Curiouser, and Ed Ruscha, Drumskins. Veronica, welcome to Art Scoping.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's great to have you. And particularly at this moment, because of all the pandemic distractions out there, I think your obsession with owls may be the most rewarding I've found. So tell me about this.
1: <laughs> you know, it has been a total obsession. I will admit it. Uh, it has been a joy. It started even before the pandemic. I. I had a sort of series of setbacks, you know, I had a colleague at the Blanton Museum who passed away, I had mm-hmm. my grandmother passed away, and I heard about this eastern screech owl that was in a neighborhood one over from me. And on a lark, I went to see it. And I was so mesmerized to see this tiny six-inch owl sitting perfectly like a little Buddha in its hole in the tree that I kind of became obsessed and I started returning to the tree every every other day and to the point where I I waited to see it pop out of the cavity. And I just became <sighs> so enchanted by its habits and its amazing camouflage. And I'd always been a birder, but Texas has really reignited that love for me Um and I love that the rest of the country's kind of becoming owl obsessed. I mean, it, I, I constantly get text messages about, you know, the snowy owl that was found in Central Park. And I think mm-hmm. it's become a bit of a, a nationwide, uh, you know, it's uh, owls are easy to be enchanted by.
0: It's true. And it's no wonder that the Athenians on their coinage had owls as a symbol that are such lovely images and icons really of Greek art. I've been obsessed with them forever as well.
1: It's funny that you say that. When my grandmother passed away, I found an Athenian coaster that she had purchased on a trip to Greece, and it has the an owl on it, and I made sure to, you know, claim that for myself, and I use it all the time.
0: A couple of years ago, you showed Vincent Valdez's The City One 2015-16, which is a four-part thirty-foot-wide canvas that shows a group of clan members in hoods and robes overlooking a metropolis. And When it went on display, I believe it kicked up some dust. And I was hoping you could recall the experience of that. And most importantly, how you feel at the Blanton in showing works of a political nature versus perhaps your past experience at major municipal museums.
1: Yeah, thank you for asking about that. It was a transformative project for me and also for the Blanton um, because I acquired that work before... Trump became president and and the world was a really different place when i saw that in his san antonio studio where he made the painting and the context really felt even though white supremacy was was still so prevalent then as well it sometimes artists pick up on these things before the rest of the country does they they are often i think canaries in the coal mine and mm-hmm. and vincent was really thinking about the ways that White supremacy was prevalent not in fringes, not on in outskirts of cities, but that it that there were people, police officers, or teachers, even uh, you know people who go to your church who subscribe to these sorts of uh, forms of discrimination and hatred. And so when I put this show on the calendar to to exhibit the painting, it was a different moment. And quickly we realized that after, especially when the violence happened at Charlottesville. Virginia, I think we realized that we needed to prepare our audiences for what we were mm-hmm. going to be sharing with them, and also really have more dialogue within our community in Austin and on campus about the work, and get some recommendations, perhaps even from members of the community, about how we could present it. What would be because for many people, the imagery of the Klan, even if it's not violent imagery, is still triggering. So. I'm really grateful, though, that under no circumstances did anyone try to stop the display. You know, I mm-hmm. had I have a director who believes in the painting, believes in the artist, and just fully supported my commitment to showing it. You know, I had amazing colleagues. Uh, we ended up doing a lot more programming around the the work and doing more community conversations and a, a symposium on art and racism and and so really the whole museum worked in overdrive, I would say, for this one painting that we really all believed in. But I was just grateful that there was that level of commitment. And honestly, it was kind of nerve wracking. You just don't know how people are going to respond to work like that. We also had a New York Times review that I thought could potentially sensationalize the work and really undermine what we were doing. Uh, You know, sometimes the press can change and impact the way everyone else understands the story, even if you've tried to do right by the work. So, And we did end up getting – most of the press we got was actually very – very positive and deep and thoughtful. And most importantly, the community response was actually unbelievably positive, not uh, just feeling like white supremacy was such an important issue to be addressing. And mm-hmm. um, and also an amazing number of responses from, from people who just had an emotional response to the painting and really felt impacted by it. The number of people who commented on the woman holding a baby in the painting and how much that disturbed them and made them mm-hmm. realize that this was so much more pervasive than they than they thought and also the number of latinos within texas who came to see the work who said you know what i never feel represented in museums and i'm so grateful to see a latino artist who is an extraordinary painter contributing to the dialogue we need on race and not just on issues around the border or immigration so i it was the response was really deeply gratifying and meaningful.
0: And that may surprise listeners who think of Texas in a very flat way, which has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with the realities of the cities in Texas like Austin and Dallas and Houston and San Antonio that are typically very progressive cities in a large measure. And how does that compare with New York and the other places you've worked where it's not infrequent that Museums don't show work that could, in fact, elicit strong reactions. Just they quietly choose not to show them.
1: Right. No, I feel so grateful. I mean, I didn't really know Texas before I moved to Austin eight years ago, and I— I kind of fell in love with the the place immediately and the people, and I feel a sense of freedom working at the Blanton that I've never felt in any other positions that I've had. And part of it is that I am, you know, a curator now of and overseeing uh, the the modern and contemporary department, whereas my other positions were were not as high on the the, the ranks or the ladder. But I feel so lucky to be it to be in Texas, and I do think there's a way that there's greater risk-taking happening in smaller institutions. I just ov- just heard Lonnie Bunch, the Secretary of the Smithsonian, give a talk, and he talked about smaller institutions tend to be engines of innovation. And I agree with that. And I also think they tend to be more risk-taking.
0: Speaking of risk-taking, you've been in some big institutions that welcomed a degree of candor and, and some which have been very cautious about it. 20 years ago, you had a stint working at the Metropolitan Museum, developing audio tour content for Antenna Audio. I'm wondering if that experience informed Curated Conversation, which is a video interview program you host at the Blanton, and what it was like then and how you're using it now.
1: I'm so glad you asked about that, Max. That job writing audio guides completely changed me as a person and a curator. And it was so impactful and informative on the work that I'm doing as a curator. And part of the joy of that job was also just going to the Met every day and what an amazing institution it was. I I pinched myself every day. But it was so liberating to get to think about art for a general audience, because when you're writing an audio tour, you're not reaching you know, you're not just trying to reach scholars or journalists, you're, that audio tour is being picked up by your friend who has never taken an art history class or by your your aunt or your uncle. And so to write in a way for the ear, you know, to conduct interviews and write for the ear, but to think about what is going to be most significant to address, how to make something really compelling in a short amount of space and time was really a joy and I've always considered myself a curator educator. I think those things are intertwined, you know, to be a great curator, you need to care about an audience and the public and about communicating your ideas clearly and compellingly. And I think working on an audio guide just was a great experience. And I got to write about medieval art, for example. I had to come up with the entire tour for medieval art at the Met, one of the great collections of medieval art in the world. And I'm not a medievalist, and I loved it. I loved you know, learning about medieval art, but then also I felt like I was the audience. I could make it accessible mm-hmm. to a wider audience because that was me. I'm, I'm not a scholar. And I also really, to your point about the curated conversations and the connections between the programming I'm doing at the Blanton and the audio guides that I did for the Met and other museums, I just realized how much I enjoy talking to a variety of smart people, um, not just fellow curators, but in that job, I would interview, I remember interviewing David Halberstam, the great Pulitzer Prize winning historian. And I was interviewing him about a Richard Avedon photo. And I I got off the interview, and I literally jumped up and down. And then I called my dad because he's a history buff. And I told him about how it had gone. Hmm. And it was just incredible to have all these different perspectives. And I really care about audience and thinking about the public and how to and expanding the number of people who think art is something that they should be interested in.
0: But it's also useful to think Veronica right now during the pandemic we're thrown into the necessity of using social media and platforms like Zoom to have debate conversation exchanges of ideas. Do you think after the pandemic recedes that you'll continue using that platform. Because one of the striking parts of museum work is we all have toiled in our institutions, in our communities, and have been oblivious to the rest of the world. And here you are being listened to by people all over the world.
1: I completely agree with you, Max. And if we are not changed by this pandemic, if we don't change the ways that we operate as museums and the way we think about things, then we have failed, I think. I am already so excited about continuing this kind of programming beyond the pandemic. It's not even a question. I think we were a month into the Curated Conversation series when we all agreed that we needed to continue it even after the pandemic ended. Because the other thing is, I love hosting artists and people at the museum. And I love being in a room with others and having the Q&A in person. But there is a way that the nimbleness of inviting someone really fantastic to be in conversation with you and they don't have to leave their couch and they don't have to leave their family behind. They don't have to, you know, stop making paintings for three days as they trudge through the airport. And then the audience that you get, you know, that that people can enjoy the programming and be introduced to an artist or a thinker who would not be able to come to Austin necessarily, It's just really expanded our reach and what we're able to do. And as somebody who loves to champion under-recognized artists and think about who's not getting enough of a platform, there's no better way to do it than digitally in ways like our curated conversation series are doing.
0: Yeah, and one of the guests you've had on that platform, who I don't know that we would describe him as under-recognized, but it's Texan, Diedrich Bracken's. And you showed a selection of his textile work at the Blanton. We're going to link to that conversation.
1: Oh, I loved that conversation that Diedrich and I had. And uh, Diedrich Brackens is a native Texan. So while he lives in L.A., it was so gratifying to host his exhibition because it was the first time he'd had a show in his home state. And I think it meant something very significant to him um, because he Texans tend to feel very proud of where they're from and uh, a really strong tie to the to the state and the place but you know you're right he's not an underrecognized artist He's he just received an award yesterday. I can't keep up with all of his awards. Um, he received a studio museum uh, prize many years ago so he's had a meteoric rise in the art world but but let's keep in mind also, does the general public know him no you know i would say it takes so much for an artist to to have a wider reputation so while he's certainly not under recognized in the art world he's still a young artist who deserves greater recognition and the work has really resonated with people and i think having a chance to hear from him about the way that for example growing up in texas in a military family his uh, family's history with cotton, thinking about the relation, the African American lineage of cotton in this country, and why he chooses to use to weave and to use cotton in a way that um, honors his ancestors. I think those are the kinds of conversations and nuances and threads that I feel so privileged to get to, to think about with him in a space like the curated conversation series.
0: It's not only artists that are now the subject of conversation online and taking advantage of a newly rethought art world. But this thing you've started with others called Texas Talks Art emerged from informal conversations among a handful of museum curators about how to collaborate and support artists during and beyond the pandemic. How did that start and how is it doing?
1: Yeah, the Texas Talks Art series, we launched in the first week of the new year, and it's every Tuesday for the entire year of 2021. for It's a 30 minute conversation between a curator from one institution and an artist or an art of, artist collective who's based in Texas. So uh, I'm having so much fun with the series and it really began uh, so organically together with a colleague at the Visual Arts Center uh, on UT's campus, Mackenzie Stevens, she's their director. The two of us had started a very informal Check in among Texas curators and during the pandemic. So we would we would host a Zoom every two weeks and just check in with each other. And um, you know, none of us are able to travel anymore, so we're not attending each other's openings. We're not seeing our colleagues. And actually, I would say about a third of the group started a job you know shortly before the pandemic, so they've never had a chance to to meet other colleagues. Mm-hmm. And so it was really meant to just be a form of support for one another, but. Um, As the group became closer, we hatched this idea that perhaps we could all collaborate using, you know, the fact that all of us are engaging in this kind of digital programming, and we all know artists and Texas is just such a huge state, we also felt like, even if we weren't in a pandemic, none of us can get all around the state and visit with every artist who's here. And wouldn't it be so great if instead of doing that, they came to our couch on Tuesday and you just had to join the Zoom link and and get to drop in in someone's studio. So it's been a thrilling collaboration. It was a ton of work. It's hilarious to have a bunch of curators be in charge of anything involving technology. Uh, You would laugh if you heard some of the, the conversations we've had trying to make sure we understand what we're doing, but it's been deeply rewarding. I Uh, Last week, Vivian Crockett, who's a curator at uh, the Dallas Museum of Art, had an amazing conversation with Jatavia Gary, who's moved back to Dallas from New York after many years of living there. And she's a Dallas native. And it was just an incredible conversation. And I don't know if I would have been able to get into her studio anytime soon. She's a busy artist. And it just gave me so much to think about. And my hope is that we'll continue it beyond this year. Every museum that we invited, we came up with a spreadsheet. We had approximately 50 museums that we came up with that regularly showcase contemporary artists and in their program. And every single museum we reached out to said yes and that they wanted to be part of it.
0: That lack of territoriality is striking, I think. Yes. And I'm curious whether you could imagine a collaboration called New York Talks Art?
1: No. <laughs> Great question. <laughs> I cannot imagine that. And I do think that was one of the things I was really struck by when I moved to Texas, that I was so confused that I would get invited to openings, at the, the dinners with the donors afterwards at the Contemporary Arts Museum in Houston or the Manil. I was constantly getting invited to everything. And I thought, this is so strange. You know, usually in New York, people are, they don't want the, the competition at the... Um, special events with small groups of artists and donors. But it's sort of, there's a very different attitude in Texas and a, this this idea that we all need to support each other and work together. And of course, there's always some healthy competition, but it's, it's a much more collegial environment. And people really, uh, I mean, when I did my very first show, I just had you know, curators from all across the state came for the opening and they wanted to be there. And it's, it's so refreshing and so the way that the art world should be, but I am very aware that it's not typical.
0: How do you think that Blanton in general is going to be changed when the pandemic's in the rear view mirror?
1: Well, I think the pandemic has been, for all of its awfulness and scariness and you know, people have been affected, of course, in all sorts of personal ways at the museum. But I think it has brought us together as a staff. Um, You know, I think you really learn a lot about the institutional culture when you're put in a crisis like this. And, you know, as I would read about the layoffs and the furloughing happening at institutions with a lot more resources, but certainly, you know, also losing a lot more money, I'll, I'll say that. But I was really struck by Our director's commitment to keep everyone employed—you know, reassigning jobs, moving things around to keep people uh, together—I think our all-staff meetings, which I used to find a little painful because they were at eight-thirty in the morning, now they've just been like incredible. They've been—they're much more democratic when they're on Zoom because we can see each other's faces. We're we're not all sitting staring at the director or one person at a podium. Um, So a lot of things have changed in in just an internal way, but I think. It also has helped us to reimagine the way we interact with a, a wider audience, you know, the reach that we can have. Um, so I think it's going to impact us in ways that we're still figuring out. But I think profoundly, I mean, I think all of us are, are rethinking the way we do things because this strange moment where we're all working from home and having to adjust adjust so much. Uh, some of these changes that we're making for the pandemic might actually make more sense in the long run. For example, I mean, I'm just thinking of the way that a show is up for maybe three months, and there's a fast clip, right, of of changing of exhibitions. And one thing that a lot of museums and we have been among them have done is to keep shows up just a bit longer, you know, to try to, um, mm-hmm. in part, because fewer people are seeing them, of course, but but I could also see that being something that is a more common practice going forward to give people a chance to to see things more, to also invest in the shows that you do uh, more. you know, there's there's a way instead of spreading your resources too thin. So it'll be interesting to see that's just one thing I think is going to going to already shift a bit. The focus on collections to people, uh, one thing I've been really struck by is how many people have, really spent a little more time looking at their collections and realizing how they can harness the strength of of their collections. Mm -hmm. And then also another thing I noticed, there are museums that I felt like had never paid attention. I I will not name them, but there are museums that I felt had (laughs) never paid attention to their local artist community and had only exhibited work from artists in other cities. And I, I did see a shift of thinking, you know, in a pandemic, who's coming to your museum? It's your local audience. And I saw a really gratifying look at, um, at local artists and making sure that they're in the conversation and not left out.
0: Pre-pandemic, when the world felt differently, <laughs> you were critical to the realization of Ellsworth Kelly's Austin, which is among the most exciting commissions of his long career. Can you Give us a sense of how it started and and what visitors can expect to experience after the pandemic.
1: Yes, working with Ellsworth Kelly on his chapel with stained glass windows, um, which he called Austin, oh, was one of the was one of the great professional experiences of my life. And it's kind of amazing that we. I'm so glad we were able to pull it off. Um, you know it the building didn't open until after he passed away, but he, it was under construction when he did. And he knew he had completed every aspect of the design and with us. And so it really was exactly what he wanted. And, I was just when I started at the Blanton, and I remember Simone, my director, Simone Wicha, she called me before I started, like t- two weeks before. She said, I know you haven't started, but we have this amazing opportunity and I need to move on it right away. And I only will do that if I have if if you're fully committed and if you think this is uh, you know, you're gonna need to be an integral part of this. And I need you to, to say whether you think this is important enough. And she described the project and I was like, and she said, and feel free to do research and come back to me. And I was like, I do not need to do research. That is a once in a lifetime, like, yes, yes, yes. Like no research needed. And, um, I couldn't believe I had never heard of his, uh, it only had been written about, I'd never heard of his chapel. It had only been written about, um, this, this vision that he had in the 1980s and it had been unrealized. And he had a model in his studio and he'd always wanted it to happen. And what's What's so compelling about it is that it's unlike, say, for example, James Tyrrell's Sky Spaces, which are wonderful and incredible spaces. But there are, I think, something like eighty something in the world that you can go and experience. This was the only building that Ellsworth ever imagined, and and it connects to his time in France on the GI Bill after uh, World War II, um, where he he spent seven years, nearly seven years in France, and he fell in love with. Romanesque architecture, and all the incredible cathedrals and stained glass programs. And this chapel is a sort of contemporary um, version of those beautiful spaces that combines, I think, a spiritual uplift, a sense of serenity. It's also really interesting to me, it's one of the few spaces where people walk in, and they just, you know, they, they spend time they're not distracted. It's a little bit like being on a hike or something. It's just people are are fully present. It's a contemplative and serene space. And there's something about the color. He's such a great colorist. And the way when you combine natural light coming in through these brilliantly, vibrantly colored windows, it's um it's very uplifting.
0: Veronica, you remind me in the weeks after 9-11 he was in touch with me at the whitney to say he had an idea for the site of the world trade center and he sent a drawing which is in the yes. collection of the whitney imagining yes. a greenscape do you remember this
1: yes i completely remember this and wasn't it it was at some point it was reproduced in the new york times even though right. it didn't end up happening right
0: right mhm yeah and it's, it speaks to his not religiosity certainly but his Interest in the configuration of sacred space—that's mm-hmm. so unusual. Do you think the Rothko Chapel was anywhere in his consciousness as he was thinking about Austin?
1: That's a great question, and I did ask him, and uh, I did ask him that, and I think it was less of—it was actually less influential than I would have thought. Um, mm-hmm. I think he was much more inspired by. Uh, like I mentioned, these sort of Romanesque buildings, the um, the tumbling squares window, which is my favorite window in the Blanton Chapel, is d- directly inspired by Chartres and by the rose window there. So I think the French examples were more significant to him. Uh, I believe he's he had been to the Rothko Chapel. I, I can't imagine how it wouldn't be an influence in some way. When we announced the project in the press... A colleague of mine who used to be at the Manil called me and said, you know, just very irreverently, but said, you know, we get gloom and doom, and you get joy and light, because the Rothko Chapel <laughs> is, is right. the, is a work, it's an incredibly powerful experience, but it is it is heavy. It's there's a heaviness right. to that that work, and I think, uh, I think that that's very different than the spirit of the Ellsworth Kelly building.
0: Yeah, and given his francophile tendencies, maybe he was thinking about Matisse's Chapel in the south of in France more. Yeah, so you've contributed to books on Ellsworth and on Saul LeWitt, which for you was a huge part of your professional leavening as well. Tell us about working on Saul's wall drawing catalog raisonné.
1: Yes, I I feel like Saul LeWitt is my kind of guardian angel and um, has influenced my my career in so many ways, not just in terms of how much I admire the work and have written about it over the years and uh, the worked on the wall drawing catalog resume, but but also the way he wore being an artist in the world, his his complete lack of pretense, his feminism, his um, generosity of spirit and the way he he really disregarded hierarchy. I was not surprised when I was working on the wall drawing catalog resume to learn that when he had his, First major museum show at the Museum of Modern Art in 1978. He invited all the guards to the opening because he had been one of them. He had been what he referred Mm -hmm. to as a night watchman at the Modern, as it was then called. Uh, He had worked, you know, kind of at the at a desk late at night, reading French novels, I think, for the most part. But he was just an incredible supporter of other artists and and just a a brilliant artist in his own right. So. Mm -hmm. It's a real gift as a curator. Usually, you work on a show with an artist, and that's the last time you get to work with them, right? Because uh, you you move on to another project. You're not going to do another show with the same artist. But um, even though Solowood had passed away, by the time I was working on his catalog resume, I just feel so lucky to have returned to that work again and again. And he had said to me, uh, you know, after working with him at the Whitney and, and being a curatorial assistant on an incredible retrospective that was organized by SF MoMA that came to the Whitney mm-hmm. Um, we developed such a close relationship during that experience. And he I remember he said to me, well, one day there, there will be a catalog resume. And wouldn't it be so great if you worked on it? And I just never <laughs> in my wildest dreams thought that actually would
0: happen. That's so great. Veronica, one last question returning to your adoptive land of Texas. You've been very active on Instagram sharing images of its landscape and architecture. And I'm wondering how you see social media and curatorial practice converging and diverging.
1: You know, I will admit that I, as you can probably tell from the frequency of my posting, that I actually love Instagram. It has been this whole channel for me to share. First of all, I think Texas is very misunderstood by other parts of the country. And so the number of times people say, that's a hike in Texas, or that's in Texas, that, or, you know, I post images of butterflies, people are surprised to learn that there are more butterflies in Texas than any other state. There's I think people have this, I mean even my mom when I moved here, I think she thought Texas was, you know, J R Ewing out of the Dallas miniseries on TV. So so part of why I post what I do is to share the beauty that I find here, the community that I find here, the natural world that I'm exploring here and so happy to be amidst. Um, but I also I also do see it as an extension in some ways of my curatorial practice. Uh, one of the things that's great about Instagram There's, for example, an artist who is from from Texas, from a small town in Texas who now lives in L.A. And he's not really, um, he's not friends with a lot of other artists in the L.A. art scene. He sort of lives in East L.A. And I came across his work at a collector's home in Austin. And it was these, he makes, his name is Roberto Benavidez, and he makes these amazing paper sculptures of birds, among other things. But I fell in love with them and posted them on, you know, ended up commissioning one or two for myself and posted them on Instagram. And so many people responded to that work that um, he told me, you know, he received like seven or eight other commissions from that, Hmm. from just posting that. And to be able to sort of showcase someone who who you believe in and help them get greater recognition, uh, those... That just is so deeply satisfying. And to think beyond the constructs of the art world and the, and the traditional channels of distribution and exposure, I think, I think social media allows us to learn about artists who are not represented by galleries and who are interesting. And, and it's, a, it's a space, you know, to really for, for discovery in my mind. And I, I use it like that.
0: And that's where we're going to send our listeners. Veronica, thank you so much for making time for this conversation.
1: Oh, thank you, Max. This has been such a pleasure.
0: We've been speaking today with Veronica Roberts, curator of modern and contemporary art at the Blanton Museum of Art. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.